This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am your host, Kate Sear. I'm keeping the seat warm for Emma Race, who is being rested in the lead up to the finals. We need her to be at her best as we come to the pointy end of the season. So we'll see her back next week. But I am joined by my fabulous feminist football family. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, Nicole Hayes here. Uh, Buongiorno, it's Lucy Race. <laughs> Just back. Welcome back, Lucy. Oh, hi. How hey, are you? We haven't seen you for weeks. You've been on a fact-finding mission exactly. throughout Europe. Yeah. No, it was really important to uh, for the Outer Sanctum to get a bit more of a global <laughs> perspective on sport. Plus so, the team doesn't hurt either. And a suntan. So I took a really what was a very difficult hit for the team and went to Europe for three weeks. Well, thank you. Tell us so, what it was like. How'd you go? What, it was fantastic. So the first thing I did was I went to Athens and tried to find friend of the pod, Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> was he there? I couldn't he's, find him. He's deceased, I think. Yeah, <laughs> there were some traces, but a lot of the places where I looked like it was kind of in ruins. So uh. it was hard to find. But, that happens in Greece. But that was pretty great. And um, then I spent some time in Croatia and um, I think you'll recall I was buoyant about the Croatian-Australian rules connection before I left and I had a chat to quite a few people about that. I was surprised hmm. that some of them really didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> you were surprised by <laughs> but that. But I did introduce... Australian rules football to a Croatian friend and that was just fascinating. I, I love showing somebody the game for the first time. And AFL, just... AFLC, is that what it's called now? Yeah. AFL Croatia? <laughs> yeah, so, well, I actually showed some live AFLM to our friend Tony and it never fails to disappoint when someone sees the game in it in all its glory. They think and there are no rules. No, exactly. And yeah. like, oh, oh, can you do that? <laughs> so that was good. Um, I ended up in Rome and what was fascinating, I don't know if you guys know this, but Dockland Stadium isn't the first stadium to have a roof. Oh, is that right? Did you know the Coliseum had a roof? No. Before it all fell down. So the Coliseum was Was it a first... retractable motorised roof? No. Well, it was retractable <laughs> in that it did retract and it didn't come back. <laughs> How'd they go with the turf? But, um, what was the turf a, like? It, the turf was actually sand because right. you needed to be able to clean up the bodily right. fluids. Oh. But sorry about that if you're eating. <laughs> the capacity of 55,000 people and a roof, I thought, makes mm, it you know, pretty impressive. important. But it wasn't the biggest stadium. So there was a stadium called the Circus Maximus, which is where they had those big chariot races. That actually had a capacity of 250,000. Oh, wow. So wow. unfortunately, it's in disrepair cons- now. <laughs> Can you imagine the concession stand queue? I know. Yeah. But the other thing I found out is that there used to be female gladiators. Wow. So really? that was something I didn't know. And um, Russell Crowe led me down the garden path. <laughs> yes, he did I on, on a number men. of issues. <laughs> <laughs> I will have you know. But what is fascinating is that it was a fairly, I think you'll find it familiar, the, the reason that 
there weren't, you know, this it didn't go on with female gladiators. And that was because um, Septimius Severus, when he became emperor, was very <laughs> uncomfortable with seeing women get injured. Oh, so oh, in 2000, oh, 200 <laughs> AD, he banned them. Of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. And his uh, ideas are still echoing throughout the world today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So I ended up in Rome um, where I saw a painting called The Archery Contest of Diana and Her Nymphs. All I could think of was this is women getting to play sport. So it's this lovely big canvas of um, an archery contest and there are some women running and there's some women having a wrestling contest. And um, it's it, I really did do the feminist reading of it. Mm. Just like normal humans. <sighs> Sounds amazing. Hopefully all of that will inform us as we go forward. Well, thank you, Lucy, for that (laughs) whistle-stop tour through Europe and through AFLC and AFLI. Fantastic. Um, While you were away when there was some footy on, uh, particularly oh, AFL, it? yeah, AFL M was, was what's going on. Was Who's going in the along? <laughs> well, what are your highlights, Nick? What have you noticed in the last week or so? Well, I think probably the thing that I can take out of this most recent round is the fact that my tipping is terrible anyway, um, <laughs> and I would be better served by putting all the names in a hat and then just throwing them up and seeing which one sticks. And then I think anything goes at this point. But it's very exciting to see teams like Brisbane and and also Richmond getting there. We're not allowed to talk about Richmond being a favourite. I am. I I said it to Tess earlier. Now, if anyone said this to me about Hawthorne, I would just faint. But I think Richmond's going to win the flag, and I'm. I'm. I'm, You might be putting the moss on them. I might be. I might be. But I do think they're going to, because while you were away, Lucy, a a few things happened. Geelong's stumbled. Collingwood has been struggling. West Coast is is going well on and off. Chris Fagan's Lions are Mm. just. Roaring, mm. and um, the tigers yeah. are, are starting to surge. I think, and I, I know we were also talking about this off air. There is a chance that Alex Rance might be back in time for the finals. So it's amazing. I just think it looks so good for Richmond. You know who will really find it hard if it is a Brisbane Richmond grand final is our Emma oh, Race, yes. who Lions can't and tell Lions and tigers apart. <laughs> The other thing that happened on the weekend, which was lovely to see, was that Brett Ratton was back in the driver's seat. He coached St Kilda and they won, so congratulations to him. But also, too, it felt like a bit like 2010 or something or 2011 because Mick Malthouse put his hand up again saying he'd like to coach again. That was I, unexpected. Do you know what else he, he said which really threw me? And I can't believe it was, wasn't across all of the newspapers, but after the Bulldogs-St Kilda game, he he said that he is not a fan of the song the, the victory song after every match. I don't know who else heard this. He said this on ABC. He thinks it should just be reserved for special games when the players are really feeling it. Thoughts? My I know, thoughts. question without notice. <laughs> You're just stunned. I'm speechless. Yes. I am speechless. That's one of the most beautiful, quaint, quirky, lovely aspects of our game. I absolutely mm-hmm. love the song. I'm not a fan of it. I have to say I did hear that uh, the Richmond team sang a very subdued version of their song because little Poppy Rewalt was in the circle and I thought that was just divine. It was gorgeous. (laughs) Another gorgeous thing that came out of that game, um, I don't know if anyone saw the Alice Springs match, Um, the incredible kind of local suburban feel of that ground and so many Indigenous people came to celebrate to see these incredible, you know, the amazing players. But then the the Indigenous players switched jumpers at the end, which I thought was really beautiful and very apt, I think, for the conversation that we're 
going to have? So this is the time we usually roll up our sleeves and melee. And today we are going to do that, but it's a melee with a difference. We're going to focus on one subject only. And that is the huge talking point in this week of footy. And that was the screening of Ian Darling's important documentary, The Final Quarter, on Australian television. That's the documentary that tells the story of the final stages of the career of Adam Goods. It was confronting viewing for many people, uh, although not everyone, as we'll, we'll discuss shortly. And it has prompted a really important and renewed national conversation about race. I want to start by asking you both about your reflections on the documentary and the aftermath. I think what really struck me the most was the way that it consumed social media afterwards and how overwhelmingly my feeling was that the response was, wow, we misread this. And I think there's something kind of extraordinary and really unusual about that happening, um, particularly in social media. I found that quite gratifying. And I guess my hope is that it continues that the momentum of this continues to actually affect real change. Um, Lucy, what about you? My husband actually watched it on his mobile while we were while we were away. And um, I found it you know, quite emotional to see his reaction to it because I'd seen it a little while ago, and then we were able to have a conversation. I, I really love that part in the documentary where we hear from Stan Grant, and he says that, um, and this is a quote from him where he says, there is a moment where we can have a real conversation about how Indigenous people feel about what Adam hears when he hears those boos, and that's a conversation we can have. And I'm really pleased that we're at a point where it is on wider release so that people can see it. And I, I guess the cynic in me wonders whether the people who really do need to see it or who could benefit from seeing it won't. And I guess the other thing that I was really struck with was thinking about, you know, we, we talk a lot about what the effect was on Adam, but this week I've really been thinking about how that whole period had an effect on a lot of other people as well, young Indigenous people and older Indigenous people and young non-Indigenous people and, and what message they take when you see something like that sustained campaign against somebody. We've all watched football for a very long time and we have never seen such a targeted campaign against one player. And I think where the documentary is so useful is that it really just shows the enormity of what that situation was. Absolutely. I mean, you talk about the emotional reaction too of the public, and that is something that did strike me in the immediate aftermath. Um, I was teaching while the documentary was screened. I'd seen it previously. And I was surprised when I came out of class and saw what was going on on social media. There were a lot of people describing it as heartbreaking and confronting, uh, upsetting and shocking. But one person's Twitter feed caught my eye in particular, and that was Dr. Chelsea Bond, who is an Indigenous academic. And I just want to share with you what she tweeted. I felt like it was so such an important intervention in the conversation. She said, I didn't cry and I was not shocked. And she made the point that the treatment of goods isn't actually an aberration. And importantly, she said this, and I'll quote, my main disappointment was its ending and the way in which goods was configured as someone defeated by racism. Just because we are done with it does not mean we have been beaten. It means we have found our strength to say no to an abusive relationship. Mm. That really stopped me in my tracks, actually seeing that 
that tweet and I then followed a, down a kind of rabbit hole of what she was tweeting. She shared an article by Daniel James who'd written a piece last year called Social Justice Incorporated and it resurfaced in the aftermath of the documentary and he also celebrated the strength and resilience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and he wrote that the fact that Aboriginal players have blossomed in the VFL-AFL competition is not due to the brilliance of the administrators. It is down to the strength courage and determination, Aboriginal players, families and communities who support them. That was a message that I think was lost a, a mm. bit in the discussion that I really wanted to to amplify. Mm. I also, one of the other things that struck me was particular media commentators being kind of identified as having had a really positive and the right response at the time. And so Caroline Wilson and, and Mark Robinson in particular were named as really stepping, really against, it felt like against the tide of some of the other football commentators in standing up for Adam Goods and calling out the behaviour. And what did frustrate me was that in that documentary all the way through, there were Indigenous commentators doing exactly that. And for some mm. reason, we're not recognising that as being um, worthy of note, given when you think about the the risk they're taking, that is much bigger than for a high profile media commentator. So I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, Shelley Ware, Gilbert McAdam, Michael O'Loughlin, Anita Heiss and Stan Grant in particular for really calling out that behaviour that they've been calling out forever, but still being prepared to put their necks out in this greater conversation that where their voices generally keep being drowned out. It's like one white commentator immediately drowns out all that sea of Indigenous voices. Mm. Absolutely. One of the biggest challenges to come out of the documentary in my mind was how we move beyond an impasse that I think has characterised the debate from the outset. And that is the fact that some people refuse to see the treatment of goods, even from a segment of the fan base, as racially motivated. And that definitional challenge, uh, I think, was characteristic of the debate in the lead up to the screening of the documentary. And it has continued a bit afterwards. One of the things that I wanted to just say today, I've, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this in recent days, is that it's really important to listen more to people who have experienced racism uh, or prejudice. And on that note, here's a short clip from a British rapper by the name of Akala. He's a rapper, journalist, writer and poet, and he shares his own experiences of race. Everyday racism is the normalised experiences that we encounter daily based on our difference from the white norm. Take being stopped and searched by the police at age 12, what would be the first of many times. People shouting nigger or coon from car windows on trips to Romford during my time playing for West Ham as a schoolboy. Regularly being asked if I have drugs to sell or to pay up front for black cabs or being sarcastically asked by a tutor when I attended the Royal Institution Mathematics Masterclasses how many of the tribe I was bringing to the family celebration day. I could go on. I've left out the hard stuff. Yeah, Akala is a voice that uh, I would really encourage everybody to seek out if you don't know his work. He is such an important thinker in my mind. Lucy, some things caught your eye too in the discussion about what racism is and what it means. Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is something that we're seeing played out on a global stage at the moment with people turning themselves inside out for instance, in the US to try and justify how a chant of send her back isn't racist. And I think where we get caught up is people seem to have this one view of what racism is. So if it's not coming from somebody who's dressed a particular way and doing something obvious like a Nazi salute or using particular words, that people feel that 
that's the only form of racism. And, you know, this phenomenon of defensiveness is something that a lot of people talk about. Um, particularly, there's an author called Rennie Edo-Lodge who has written a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And this came out of a blog post that she did. And there's an article that she wrote back in 2017 in The Guardian where she was talking about that initial blog post. Something that she wrote in that just really caught my eye and I'd like to read it to you. She says, The covert nature of structural racism is difficult to hold to account. It slips out of your hands. Structural racism is dozens or hundreds or thousands of people with the same biases joining together to make up one organisation and acting accordingly. It reminded me, there's a podcast that I listen to frequently, which is Pod Save the People, and um, there was a discussion on an episode called Be in the Room to Make Change, where D. Ray McKesson spoke to a professor of psychology called Jennifer Eberhardt, and she's written a book called Bias. She goes into um, police departments and works with people to try and change the way that people are thinking and what impact that has on their actions. And she draws an interesting distinction between, I guess, the label of racism and bias. And I've heard people say, well, everybody has bias and, you know, it just is what it is. How do we make sense of those things? It is a complicated question. So it's true that the way our brains function, that we function with categories and we function with stereotyping and so forth. And that's because, you know, we're bombarded with all of this stimuli out in the world every day and we have to figure out how to manage it and how to bring order to it. And so our brains will use these tricks to help us to deal with all this information. Categorization is one of those tricks where you just put like things together into the same group. When you do this with people, we develop beliefs about the people who are in that category. And those beliefs are called stereotypes. And we also develop attitudes about the people who are in that category. And the attitudes are called prejudice. And together, the stereotyping and the prejudice equals bias. And that bias can influence how we act and how we make decisions. This kind of thing is happening not just in the U.S., but all over, right? It's in different cultures. You know, people will use stereotypes. The groups might change and the nature of the stereotypes might change. But the act of stereotyping is something that a lot of researchers consider universal. When we're talking about racism, we're talking about sort of people who have developed some, you know, hatred, uh, maybe if you want to use that word, towards certain groups and that they're conscious of that and they're willing to act on that. So that's different and it's a smaller group than what we're talking about with this unconscious or implicit bias. It's almost like you can think about um, old-fashioned racism as kind of acute, whereas the unconscious or implicit bias is more of a chronic condition, right? It's uh, something that can flare up. It's something that's beneath the surface, but you know, under certain conditions, it can kind of spring up and it can give you trouble and could cause problems. So they're connected, right? Uh, but they're kind of two different things that we're talking about here. What I think is really interesting about that discussion is that um, it really broadens it out. I don't think anybody is immune to bias. And I think what we do know is that one of the ways to counteract it is to talk about it shine a light on it and it actually does help change the way that people act. Another way to deal with it and to address it is to diversify to ensure that 
particularly our voices, uh, the public voices, the media voices are diverse and representative. I did actually watch the documentary live when it was played and that's the second time I've seen it. So that allowed me to prepare myself. But there was also a conversation afterwards on the project. They had multiple panels and there was a good contingent of Indigenous voices there, which was great to see. Only one woman, but that is Tanya Hosh. And she was extraordinary. She was really very articulate in identifying probably the shortfalls of where the AFL's response and and their since their letter of apology and and their recognition of the errors that they made. But it also highlighted one of the challenges around football commentary in that it is largely white men. And I think Mike Sheehan in particular represented this idea that uh, there is no such thing as recruiting for media and that there isn't a process and it's about presenting yourself and putting yourself forward. And as media people ourselves now, um, you know, who encountered in this football space our own sort of challenges and obstacles being women, it's incumbent on us having this platform. It's incumbent on us having this profile to actively seek out and to sponsor and mentor talent from particularly Indigenous, but a whole range of diverse voices. And, you know, that is something that I think we, we kind of overlook and forget how important that is. And I think that would would have prevented that conversation going the way that it did um, on so many of those football shows at the time. Yeah, the role of media in framing the public discourse, I think, was one of, if not the biggest uh, themes to come out of that documentary. It was just stark how uh, narrow the media perspective is and was. I want on that note to encourage our listeners to seek out an article. We'll put it on our social media, but an article that came out in the last couple of days by Amy Maguire for Mianjin. It's an article called Black and White Witness, and it's not about Adam Goods, but it is about race and media representation more broadly. And among other things, she critiques the process of witnessing. So that is who comes to speak for and about race in this country. And she makes the point that white commentators often position themselves or claim to be the only credible witnesses to racial issues in Australia. And she notes that this itself is a form of violence perpetrated upon the people that those white witnesses claim to speak about and for. And I think we saw that repeatedly in the documentary and also a little bit in in its aftermath. On that note, I did want to turn to a prominent Indigenous person in this space. That is Shelley Ware, who you mentioned earlier, Nicole. She was a leading light throughout the Adam Goods period. She spoke up publicly about it more than once. She implored us to do things differently and to do things better. And uh, I spoke to Shelley a little earlier. The audio quality is uh, a little different because we spoke on the phone, but here's my chat with Shelley now. So Shelley, I wanted to start off by just asking you for your reflections on the final quarter documentary when it screened last week. How did you feel watching it? Well, that was my fourth time actually watching it. So I sort of watched it with different eyes. This time I sat with my son, Taj, and watched it. So it was more about wanting to answer all of his questions that he had while he was watching. I was relieved because it felt like I've been watching this for a while now and I was glad that the whole of Australia had the opportunity to watch it so we could all start having the same conversations instead of just the little internal ones that I've been having at the Carlton Footy Club or within different aspects of the community. But for the whole 
all of Australia to watch it was a, was a great relief, really. A lot of um, people are saying, you know, that they're going into public situations and the people that have watched it are like, how could we not have seen that was racist? Like, it was. And it was just that real lack of understanding of Aboriginal culture that led to what happened. And people are like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. So a lot of people have gone into a really positive space with this, so it's just fantastic. Now, one of the things that did happen in the aftermath of the documentary was that there were some panel discussions on television to dissect the documentary and reflect on it. There was an exchange that caught your attention. This was an exchange between Tanya Hosh, who's from the AFL, Waleed Ali, a a well-known journalist, and veteran football journalist Mike Sheehan. The discussion was about diversity in the media and why it is that we don't have many Indigenous voices and Indigenous faces in the media. Mike Sheehan said something to the effect that, to his understanding, Indigenous people had not been blocked from opportunities to be in the media. And he then went on to say that no one gets recruited, you make your own way. And you reacted to this, Shelley, and decided to tweet something in response. Can you tell us what it was? Yeah, well, I, I, I did react. I reacted quite physically because that's that's just simply not true. And basically, I've been told many a time that the Australian public just isn't ready to see an Aboriginal person on their television every night, that mainstream media isn't ready for Aboriginal people. And it's been proven to me over a long period of time that this is, in fact, true. I just thought, I have to say something. I really like Mike. And I was like, that's not what it is. And um, so I tweeted it out and it sort of exploded. (laughs) Can I I ask you, Shelley, when you say that it's been said to me many times that Australia isn't ready to see Aboriginal people on television, who tells you these things? Who, Who do you hear those things from? Well, sometimes it is people within the hierarchy of television channels. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's even been people that I've worked with within the Aboriginal community have said those things to me. Generally, it's been shown to me by working with non-Indigenous girls that then go on to work in mainstream media when I work alongside of them in the same space and I stay at NITV. There's a, a huge misconception that NITV is a space just for Aboriginal people and that that's where we belong, which is also another thing I've been told over and over and over. Well, this is created for Aboriginal people. That's where you belong. You should stay there. Don't leave there because there'll never be another job for you in another in mainstream, which is another classic. So when you hear that and you see what happens with non-Indigenous girls, you know it's true. So you decided to go publicly and tell us what happened in the 24 hours or so that followed. A journalist called Catherine with an ABC, she saw it. She retweeted and said, you know, come on, you know, we need non-Indigenous people to stop telling Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people what's happening in their life. You know, we need to stop and we need to listen. And she just happened to catch the tram with Mike and sat down next to him and she said what I had said and she said what she had said. He was just like, oh, I had no idea. And then he's reached out to me and we've had a phone call and we've talked and he said, I just did not know that people spoke to you like that and that was actually what was happening so we had a really good chat and I sort of let him know a few other things that have happened and he was really sad and really appalled and he said oh look I have to be able to help help you and help any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person that wants to come forward I want to be a part of this change so it was a really good powerful conversation and and it's the same thing with the Adam Goods documentary it starts conversations how do you think the mainstream media or people in media more broadly can help to be part of the change that you would like to see, Shelley? How can that? How can we change those attitudes and those perspectives? 
Well, one of the things that Mike said to me was, he just said, oh, I just thought that that's what you had chosen to do, to stay NITV. And I said, one of the reasons NITV was created was because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't even being getting a shot to go into mainstream media. So it was a sense to give us experience. What's happened is somewhere along the line, it's stopped. We aren't getting the jump into the mainstream media as much as we really should be. They think that we want to be there, and we do want to be there. That's not an actual issue. I love working on NITV and SBS, but part of it is a stepping stone into mainstream media that isn't happening. So um, I'd like to see that happen a bit more, that people looked at us and said, actually said, oh, would you like an opportunity for this? Because we know people are recruited. When we put in our, our resumes for a job, look at us seriously because, you know, we want to have a go and break into mainstream media. One of the things that Mike has he's asked me to go and talk to Channel 7 about possibly working out something like that and how we can make those transitions for other people happen. Fantastic. You mentioned that you watched the documentary on this fourth occasion you'd seen it, but that you sat down with your son to watch it. How mm-hmm. was that experience as a family watching it together? I imagine it might have been an emotional one. Yes. So the very first time I watched it, I cried like a baby. And then um, this time with Taj was more really on my toes to want to work out how he was feeling and engaging with him. And he had a lot of anger towards, towards some certain people in the film. And he said, well, now I just... I just never, ever want to see his face again. And then there were a lot of questions about, but why? Why Adam Goods? And all he saw was a proud Aboriginal man showing off his culture. And he said, why? And I said, because of the lack of understanding, love. So he was really hurt that that happened when he saw that it wasn't necessary. So it was quite emotional. And I was very tiptoe around him, making sure he knew what, you know, he was asking me the questions and getting it all out. And it's, every time I watch it, it takes me about three days to get into a really positive headspace. So you can't, like, you, you go through it in your mind and you just can't believe that my man was just treated this way and so poorly and that the media encouraged the behaviour for so long. And to be a part of the media and trying to be that voice that was fighting for, you know, an understanding for what was happening, you feel really like you let him down. Very emotional, very shameful, um, very sad, but I try to look at the positives that are coming out of it because if you keep looking at the negatives, you just end up staying really, really low. Look at all the positives. And, you know, like somebody tweeted the other day that they were at their son's basketball game after it. All the parents were just talking about the Adam Goods documentary and only one person who didn't see the documentary was saying, oh, it wasn't racist, it was racist. And everyone else that had seen it turned to him and said, just don't comment. You have to watch that documentary mm-hmm. of the series of events. Please, you need to stop talking because it was. So where with you, Shelley? We want to look forward now and think yes. about what we can do as a nation. Where do we go from here? If you had one message for our listeners about where to from here, what would that message be? Well, just to have an open heart and to listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But most importantly, I think, is to self-educate because it's a mass massive part of our population that didn't get that education in school. I was one of part of that generation that had no education about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at school. So even being an Aboriginal person, I still have to educate myself on so many aspects of my own culture and history. That's 
where you get your empathy and understanding and where you have compassion and love for one of the most beautiful cultures and histories of yeah. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the world. So get in there and enjoy what we've got because there's so much beauty. Well, thank you, Shelley Ware, always mm. for speaking to us. It is such a privilege to hear her perspective and to get her insight on this issue. So where do we go from here? What are your thoughts on next steps to move things forward, Nicole? Well, it won't surprise our listeners here that I'm going to go to books <laughs> as an answer. I, I think about how um, inculcated the American culture is and how we have absorbed so much of it because books, the stories we've read, the movies we've watched, the TV that we see. And I think we need to actively engage with that from Indigenous stories. Um, There are so many amazing Indigenous writers out there. I'm going to name a couple in particular, but as well as consuming Sweet Valley High, if I'd been reading Amblin Quine Mulliner's YA when I was a teenager, I I really feel like I would have a different perspective. So definitely check out Ambulance uh, work. Recently in the current um, Miles Franklin shortlist, Melissa Lukashenko's Too Much Lip is gaining a lot of attention. Everybody knows I'm a big fan of Tony Birch and his new book, The White Girl, is you know, definitely causing ripples. But Anita Heiss's Chicklet is awesome. And it's just enlightening to see, you know, the humour and the particular brand of comedy that Anita brings to her experiences as a, as a black woman. Also, growing up Aboriginal, so stories and personal stories of people growing up in this country Aboriginal. But check out the TV. There's Clever Man. There's Warwick Thornton stories, Mystery Road, Black Comedy. There's a whole lot of stuff that the ABC's done. So you can get it for free even, but also to go and seek out these uh, stories, seek out these fictional stories, even though nonfiction is supposed to be the truth. And it is. I write nonfiction and fiction. The reality is I am freer. I can play with the emotional and psychological when I'm I'm in the fictional space in a way that I can't when I am calling it nonfiction. I am beholden to facts. When you explore the imagination, when you explore the possibility, the emotional truths are truer in fiction. So please get out there and support Indigenous writers. Lucy, what do you think? Do you have some ideas about how to move things forward? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because we often find ourselves at times where the chasms between us seem insurmountable. The thing that I've come back to is we need to find ways to have difficult conversations or to have conversations with people that we don't always agree with. For people who are in a position where you're not personally threatened or unsafe. I think it's incumbent on us to have those discussions and around in a race in Australia, I think that comes down to some of us white people to do that. The way that I have decided to try and approach it is to listen very widely. Um, I do listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I am listening to more and more that try to find solutions. One that I've been listening to is called Solvable, which the whole premise is, you know, let's find ways to solve really big problems. The other strategy that I'm trying to employ is to widen my bubble a little bit. You know, sometimes follow people I don't agree with on Twitter and not necessarily engage with them, but to try and understand where they're coming from. D. Ray McKesson, who I always come back to, said something on a podcast recently where he said, listen to the ways in which people justify their behaviour so that you can push a little better. And so that's something that I try to do. Practically, there's a great way 
website on Creative Spirits, um, that website, and it's on racism in Aboriginal Australia. And that has a ton of resources. It has a whole lot of um, information on unpacking different forms of racism, and I would highly recommend that. It's a lot of homework for our listeners. I'll just add a few final suggestions. So Shannon Dodson wrote a piece for the ABC earlier this year which lists 10 positive ways to engage with Indigenous issues. We'll share it on our socials. But among other things, she encourages people to watch NITV, to volunteer for Indigenous causes or organisations and, of course, to, to read up as you were both suggesting. I'd also suggest that if you're not already, follow Indigenous thinkers uh, and First Nations thinkers on Twitter and amplify their voices when you can. There's so many people like could suggest, but if you don't follow Indigenous X, that's a must. There's also Marsha Langton, Chelsea Bond, Amy Maguire, Paul Dutton, who I love, Shelley Ware, Luke Pearson, Shannon Dodson, who I mentioned earlier, Anita Heiss, Terry Yankee, Tanya Hosh, the Indigenous Players Association, and many, many more. And in my own field of academia, I mention this because I, I think everybody has their own field in which they can apply these lessons or questions for themselves. In my field, I know that I need to do more to read and engage with and cite the work of uh, people of colour. So in particular, I've been working really hard recently to do more reading in this space. And I want to mention the work of Bell Hooks, who's a black feminist philosopher, uh, Linda Tahawai-Smith, Paul Gilroy, who's just brilliant, Audrey Lord, George Yancey, Sarah Ahmed, James Baldwin, and so many more. And if you work in whatever field it might be, have a think about how you can engage with and listen to the voices of people of colour more regularly. I think that's one of the many ways we can try and move things forward. So as we know, in the aftermath of the Adam Goods documentary, one of the big questions is how we move beyond the impasse. There are a number of people doing extraordinary work on these issues right across Australia and the globe. And we sat down to talk with somebody who is working on these things. Brendan Schwab is a lawyer and trade unionist with a long and accomplished career advocating for the rights of athletes in Australia and around the world. Originally from Australia, Brendan is now based in Switzerland, where he's the head of the World Players Association, a union that represents more than 85,000 athletes from various sports across the globe. He was previously the co-founder and chief executive of the Australian Professional Footballers Association and the co-founder of the Australian Athletes Alliance. He's been centrally involved in athlete rights in numerous sports, including the AFL, and in recent months played a prominent role in the successful campaign to save refugee Hakeem El Arabi. Brendan, welcome to the Outer Sanctum. Thank you, Kate. Let me just start off by asking you why you chose to dedicate your career to sport, of all things. What interested you about this field? Uh, well, my mum was a trade unionist and a Labor Party activist, and my father was a sports administrator, uh, so I don't think there was much original thought that went into it. When I graduated in law in the early 90s, I read a book called A Whole Different Ball Game by a man named Marvin Miller, the late great Marvin Miller in our movement, the man who really built the Major League Baseball Players Association into arguably not only the strongest player association in the world, but the strongest trade union. And I was really inspired by his book, not only in the way in which he built an incredible system of work for the players, but the way in which he was able to transform Major League Baseball as a business and 
they've really been the two objectives that, that I've pursued since. How do we make great professions and great careers for the athletes? I always felt that the athletes are at the heart and the centre of sport. My father was uh, the secretary of the Richmond Football Club through a golden era and I very much grew up surrounded by players and I always felt that the players were what sport is all about next to the fans and the fans of course relate to their clubs through the players. In the mid-90s it was at a time when the professional team sports in Australia were becoming full-time and the players were looking to get organised and I feel that our model of organising, our model of making sure that the player association does not have players as members but has players as the association that as a union leader we work for the players that intimate model of organizing i felt was very inspiring and that's what we've tried to do ever since you've done a lot of work on the global stage bringing human rights to sport but there that's a fairly new relationship in the public space can you identify sort of you know what triggered that shift in the conversation around politics and sport i think uh, a couple of things happened the first thing was that sport was at the global level was was losing its social license and the tipping point in many ways was the abuse of migrant workers in in qatar and the brands that were sponsoring sport, who had been to twenty, had been through a twenty-year period themselves in coming to terms with their human rights responsibilities. For example, Adidas and Nike and others who had had issues with their supply chains. They'd gotten them in order in order to make sure their brands were legitimate. And then they were still investing millions and millions of dollars in sports governing bodies and finding themselves at the centre of human rights abuse scandals. And they finally went to the sports governing bodies and said, particularly FIFA, this is not good enough. And at the United Nations level in 2011, the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights were adopted. And then we were getting organised at the global level. And, and what we noticed was that every players association that had risen to prominence at the national level, the players were recognised as workers as employees, so they could form themselves into a union. And where the sports governing body was acting in an anti-competitive way, such as imposing an unreasonable restraint, we could hold them to legal account for that. And on the basis of those three things, the players developed what we like to say, an equal say in the way in which the sport is governed in ways which affect the players. At the global level, that was impossible. But what we found through the human rights framework was that we were able to leverage a genuine discussion to say that, look, sport should be conducted in a way which uh, upholds the internationally recognised human rights. And very quickly, we were able to help negotiate a new host city contract for the Olympic Games, uh, which embedded human rights requirements. We now have statutory commitments on the part of FIFA, the Commonwealth Games and UEFA, for example. I really think this is an emerging trend, or not an emerging trend, but an emerging reality in the way in which international sport must now be governed. A lot of that success is about the mobilisation of, uh, you know, on a grand scale of the players. What happens in unions? You're going to represent the rights of different players who might be in conflict with each other. If you think, for example, in the recent Israel Folau situation versus, say, a, a gay or bisexual athlete who similarly feel their rights are being impinged, how do you navigate that space? Yeah, it's a great question and we're very proud that, that the players run our organisations, that we work, we work for the players. But that organising has to be built around knowledge and it has to be built around principle. And uh, I think if we look at that example, which is a very good example, 
You, know, you need to have a conversation with the players to say, look, if we want to have an equal say in the way in which rugby's governed, if we want to get our fair share of revenue and have great careers and secure contracts and safe workplaces and all the other issues that go with that, then we need to work in a rights-compliant environment and we need to fully understand what those rights are. Every now and then those rights will come into conflict. But if we start to pick and choose and cherry-pick as to which rights we're going to apply in certain circumstances, then those that run the game can do the same. And then all of a sudden we're in a vulnerable position. Our system becomes weaker and therefore everyone's contract, everyone's position is placed in peril. So we need to maintain the collectivism and we need to make sure that it's built on the bedrock of uh, fundamental rights. We want to ask you about a few specific rights, Brendan. I'm particularly interested in how much freedom of expression you think athletes should have. And the recent Mac Horton example with Sun Yang, I think is a good example of this, where he has protested because of doping uh, violation in the past and ongoing investigations. Do you think that Mac Horton should be able to take a protest like that? How do you feel about FINA sanction, etc.? Well, I, I think that expression and comment is a legitimate matter to bargain. Of course, we're dealing with swimming and we're dealing with the Olympic movement and there's no such thing as a collective bargaining agreement there. And so we're then now relying on the the, the, the free space and what should apply. Now, what applies in reality is that the international sports governing body will impose whatever rule it wants. Is that acceptable? No, it's not. I think the, the case you mentioned, I, I'm very happy for athletes to courageously speak out. They need to do so from a position of principle and knowledge. And I think the real example there actually highlights the lack of confidence that the swimmers have in the anti-doping system, which is uh, implemented by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, the Chinese swimmer has been through a hearing process. Clearly, the swimmers don't have confidence that that process is being just. And um, I think that's where the underlying issue is there. Looking at the issue of the union representing all members, we've identified in the recent development of the AFLW, for example, there are at times different needs and sometimes conflicting needs between the women's competition and the men's and that some of the women's gains might seem to become at the expense of the men's. There's that potential. Do you think that unions are able to represent gender in that way or do we need women-specific unions? Look, that's that's an unresolved issue. You mentioned in the opening that I was involved with the development of the PFA and I still chair the PFA. We're pretty proud about our governance structure. We, we make sure that at least a third of our executive committee is, is made up of women. Uh, we want to do better than that. We'll be introducing a 40% uh, requirement, uh, which is best practice. But what's important in our union is that the W League players and the Matildas have control of their own collective bargaining agreement. And so therefore, our union cannot approve an agreement unless it's already been approved by the W League players or the Matildas, or for that matter, of course, the A League players and the Socceroos. Now, where the women athletes internationally have made the most gains has been in the United States, and it's been also in tennis. Now, in tennis, it started with the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association. Now, Billie Jean King originally approached in the early 70s Jack Kramer to say, I want to be a part of the ATP. Jack was a bit of a misogynist and said no, and Billie Jean King went her own way, which ended up being one of the great uh, moves in terms of gender equality in, in sport. What I have found personally with FIFPRO, the World Footballers Union, which is dominated by men, is that they've had great trouble coming to terms with the notion of equal prize money for the FIFA Women's World 
World Cup. And so the Matildas themselves led their own campaign. And it was disappointing that the male-dominated leadership of FIFPRO was unable to embrace that campaign. Remember what I said at the outset, that these we, we have an organising union. The players run the union here. We work for the players. I think the women players would be well within their rights to say, well, maybe we need our own bargaining unit. As you know, the first of two documentaries about Adam Goods screened in Australia this week, and one of the key features of the Goods period or the experience that he endured was that fans consistently said that they had the right to boo athletes, no matter what the impact on that athlete's health and well-being. And I wonder if you think that's an impasse that we can ever get past. Well, the fans have the right to freedom of expression. They certainly don't have the right to vilify or, or, or abuse. But I, I don't think actually that's the question. It's interesting how people are focusing on the rights of the fans. One of the most important discussions about sport at the moment is what are the minimum standards of governance we expect from the governing bodies? And we're now getting a broad global consensus that that includes respect for internationally recognised human rights. And that, of course, includes the right of a player who is a worker to be able to go to work in circumstances where he or she is not going to be vilified on the basis of race. If there is a risk that that is occurring, then the sports governing body has a duty to minimise and remove that risk and not satisfy itself beyond a reasonable doubt or to a certain degree that the booing is not racially motivated. There was clearly a risk which was apparent at the time, years and years ago, and and the, the element of risk should have been enough to promote action. And so the sports governing bodies need to understand, like all businesses do now, what are their corporate responsibilities to respect the fundamental rights of of everyone who goes to the game, not just the players, but including the players, and to act proactively to ensure that those rights are respected and upheld. What are the sorts of things that organisations can do to do that, particularly for marginalised groups, for people who generally don't have a, a bigger platform or as loud a voice? Well, what we're saying at the at the global level is that we, we've broken it down into four pretty simple steps. The first one is that every sports governing body um, should develop a human rights policy. The development of that policy needs to be tailored and based on the salient risks. And clearly in relation to the AFL, for example, it's very topical, but the issue of Indigenous recognition, the issue of the rights of Indigenous players would be one of the biggest issues that the AFL would need to get its head around. It's done some amazing work there. I read the other day that the West Coast Eagles had five players, Indigenous players, play on the weekend. It's just a phenomenal achievement for the sport, and it's great that the sport's proud of that. Australia should be proud of that. The second is to do what we call the human rights due diligence, an ongoing assessment to make sure that we're proactively ensuring that all the rights that are important uh, are respected and upheld. And going back to your question between the AFL and the AFLW, that would be a gender equality would be a very important aspect of that. And the third step, which is very important, and it goes back to the situation with Adam, is that even if the sport is doing those things quite well, things will still slip through uh, the gap. And the athlete then, or anyone, the fan, who's, who's affected, whose rights have not been upheld, has the right to pursue a remedy. And what Adam should have had at that time, and he may not have chosen to, 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 to enact it, but he should have been able to trigger a process which says, look, I don't want to go to work in these circumstances and, and get that hazard removed. 
And the fourth element is just open communication and engagement with the people who are affected. You need to sit down with the Indigenous players, the Indigenous community in relation to gender equality with the women players, whoever are the representatives of the affected groups. Clearly, the player associations are key to this. This is where I think sport will change, where it'll go from this unilaterally top-down imposed scenario to one of open communication and engagement. The social media issue is actually a really galvanising issue for our members at the moment. As you could imagine, uh, Paul Marsh from the AFL Players has been very active on, on this space, but so is Michelle Roberts from the NBA Players. I've spoken to the Major League Baseball players and we're finding that, yeah, players are being trolled in a whole variety of different ways. Now, we want to, and I spoke the other day to the PFA in England who just launched the Enough campaign and they actually had their players boycott social media over the Easter period because of the racial vilification that was occurring there. We believe the social media companies have a responsibility too. They're big businesses and they can't provide a platform which allows people to, to, to be vilified. And so we're looking forward. The PFA in England has already sat down with Facebook and Twitter and we will use work with our big American unions to sit down and say, look, you need to provide a safe space. It will be very interesting to see where we, where we go with that. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, we, we love social media. We couldn't have saved Hakim Al-Arabi without social media. But of course, there's also the, uh, the other side of the coin. You mentioned Hakim Al-Arabi. You were central to that campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about your role and what it was that you learnt through that experience? Well, Hakim's case was so important in that we'd been spending... You know, with people like Minky Warden at Human Rights Watch in particular, Tim Noonan, an Australian who's at the ITUC, the International Trade Union Confederation, which is led by Sharon Burrow, another Australian. We'd been spending three years trying to build a sport and human rights framework. And now here we had a refugee player who had spoken out against one of the most powerful people in football, uh, Sheikh Salman, over the crackdown on peaceful protest in Bahrain. Hakim's case, and it was black and white, there was a question of refoulement of a refugee to be tortured and, and detained. If Bahrain could do that under the eyes of the international community, under the eyes of the international sporting community, then this entire framework that we'd spent so hard trying to build would clearly be nothing more than a piece of paper. And so our role was to really galvanise the movement. And we sort of summarise it this way, that he was a unique uh, victim in that he was a test case. And we were able to use that. Craig Foster and I, for example, met with FIFA about their human rights commitments. But what ultimately saved him was this movement um, and the social media campaign. What worries me about it is that most victims of human rights abuse are not visible like Hakim was. And so therefore, those who are not visible are unable to galvanise the movement like Hakim was. They're therefore dependent on this system. And we haven't completed building that system yet. And unless and until we do, then we, we remain concerned that people will continue to suffer. And we've seen that particularly women and girls, for example, in relation to sexual abuse, which is just a horrendous problem throughout global sport. What do you think are the biggest issues facing us in, the, in terms of human rights in sport in the near future? You can't foresee them all, but sadly, nothing surprises me anymore. The, but the people we work with are amazing. You know, I'd like to say, cite, for example, Nancy Hogshead-Marker, who's led in many ways the efforts to address the situation with the US gymnasts. We have to just completely change the culture of sport. The reports into that situation basically said that pain, submission, these things were normalised. It's just a, an appalling culture. 
when sport should be a force for good, that that young women and girls are submitting themselves involuntarily to a system that has become normalised around them. So the culture just needs to be challenged. And sport started off with a voluntary assumption of risk type challenge. Yeah, you're going to get hurt. The injury rates for US gymnasts are the same as NFL players. And the discussion being used a lot in England, they use the phrase duty of care. And we can't treat sport as being exceptional or different. It's something we love and it's got unique powers. But once we start to treat it as being exceptional or different, then unfortunately, because it is a monopoly, then people in powerful positions will and do take advantage. Given everything you've seen and you've done, do you still love sport? Uh, Look, I do. And um, I feel good about that. Um, you know, I've become a big fan of the Burn Young Boys, the the yellow and black of, of Swiss football, which were founded, I like to say, by a Schwab family. And I might trace my family tree back. And my brother Cameron, my sister Jenny and I, we all go, we started in Bern. We thought when we were growing up, we were Germans. And I genuinely enjoy going to the games, uh, being in Switzerland now, uh, having a fan relationship with Richmond. But when I'm working and, you know, my, my, most of my professional investment has been in Australian football or Australian soccer, I've never really invested in that as a fan. But it's the sport that probably means the most to me because I think it's the sport that can have the biggest impact. And I'm pleased that I still do enjoy it. And I think that says a lot about how powerful it is for so many people. Well, thank you so much to Brendan Schwab. What a real honour to have him in the studio. He is such an expert on all things human rights and sport and we loved talking to him. It's that time of the week, ladies. Any final business? Lucy? Yes, well, I just want to mention that there is another film coming out about Adam Goods and this is one called The Australian Dream. Um, I've been lucky enough to see it and it's a really valuable addition to the conversation and it really does go a bit further. It is going to be premiering at the Melbourne International Film Festival on the 3rd of August and those tickets are selling fast. So if you're able to get to that and you'd like to do that, I recommend getting in and booking your tickets. And I'm going to go back to, Kate, you mentioned Anita Heiss, who is an amazing writer but also an academic. She, at the top of her Twitter feed, has a pinned link to her blog, which has which is a really thoughtful and concise breakdown of the reasons why we need to change the date for our national holiday. So if you, it's at Anita Heiss and you can follow the links from there. Well, we're going to go out in just a moment with a beautifully articulated statement about what you can do to end racism or to help end racism. It's from a New Zealand campaign led by filmmaker, director, actor, all-round super talent Taika Waititi. It's the campaign called Give Nothing to Racism. But before we do that, of course, we always love to go out with our famous cry. So ladies, join with me. Go Go footy! As New Zealander of the Year, I'm calling on every one of my fellow Kiwis to help support a very important cause. Racism needs your help to survive. You may not be in a position to give much to racism, but whatever you feel comfortable giving will make a huge difference. You don't have to be a full-on racist. Just being a tiny bit racist is enough. A smile, a cheeky giggle, even a simple nod in agreement. It all adds up and it gives others the message that it's okay. Remember. The only thing that can keep racism alive and help it grow is feeding it, nurturing it. And that's where you come in. Will you help it flourish? What will you give to racism?